Welcome to Reframed, a podcast created to educate, encourage, and inspire parents and professionals. The research is clear. Parenting a child that has a history of loss, abuse, neglect, or trauma requires parenting skills and insight to be reframed. We partner with child welfare experts to bring you evidence-based and research-driven information. Reframed host, Emily Moorhead, LPC, and guests strive to make an impact on our world by creating conversations about topics that are important to you, your family, and our communities. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Reframed. I'm your host, Emily Moorhead, and today I'm joined with Dr. Erin Espinoza. Erin, tell me about yourself. I'm Erin Espinosa. I'm a, I'm a senior researcher at an organization called the National Council on Crime and Delinquency. I've been there for about a year. Yeah. So Erin, tell me about your work there and some of your recent research that you've done. Oh yeah, sure. So um, throughout the last, I don't know, 20 years of my career, I've been really doing a lot of work around the intersectionality of juvenile justice, mental health, um, now child welfare, and kind of examining the the trends and the things that occur that may funnel kids deeper, if you will, into institutions through those different systems. And then trying to help develop policy and technical assistance strategies to have that not help happen. And if it does happen, how can we better partner with families and kids within and across those service arrays? So that's the best way I could describe it. I left academia to join the nonprofit sector, like I said, about a year ago. Um, primarily because I felt like a non the nonprofit sector would be a lot more nimble uh, and uh, would allow for a lot more, what do you call it, variability in your approaches and your responses on how to actually, one, prove evidence that things work and also to get the information out to policymakers and practitioners in a quick way. So before joining in CCD, I used to be the director of the Texas Center of the Institute and Innovation out of the um, University of Maryland, and then I was a researcher at UT. But that's pretty much been the pathway. Um, you want me to tell a little bit about the org and what they're up to, too? Yeah, that would be awesome. All right. So in, in CCD, or the National Council on Crime and Delinquency, has actually been around since 1907, so way over 100 years. Um, they're in, it's a nonprofit research implementation support organization that kind of specializes on improving systems for both youth and adults. Um, primarily focusing on just, justice-involved youth, you know, justice-involved individuals, as well as those in foster care, so adults that are in foster care, as well as kiddos that are in foster care, um, with the mission to improve the lives of all the people, you know, through both research, public policy, practice, you know, all those typical things. What's fun about joining an organization like this, too, is that, you know, we really want to align our work around the ap approach of envisioning a just society in which people are safe and supported in their communities and are treated with dignity by the systems that serve them. And that's not a small charge, you know, and we've been seeing a lot of that coming out and it's been super exciting to, 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 to see the com common public having this dialogue, like, can we actually see criminal justice reform as a healthcare issue? How about systems reform as a healthcare issue? And so all of us on our side of the fence are just, you know, we're saddened by the events, but excited about the opportunity. Absolutely. Having that conversation. I heard about you through um, some of my colleagues. They attended a conference and you were a speaker there. And then because I'm a creeper, I researched you and found a phenomenal article that you did with NPR and with Ari Shapiro about girls in juvenile um, incarceration. And I was fascinated by the findings that you found is that 
females who were incarcerated um, in juvenile detention were in there longer um, than boys, and it it had some likelihood that they would, um, you know, stay in, in the system. So tell me about that work and kind of some of your findings with it. You know, it was, it was exciting one to embark on that story and two to figure out that it would get traction enough because it was research that Ari Shapiro wants to hang out and have a conversation. So, um, let me give a backstory to that about why we got there. So I actually started my career out as a juvenile probation officer and, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I would see girls come into our detention center and we wouldn't know what to do with them. We wouldn't have a clue and, and, and it wouldn't be uncommon. And I think I opened up our blog that advertised the webinar you were talking about with this story, but you know, I have this 16 year old girl comes in. I'm the on-call probation officer. I was supposed to make a decision whether to detain her or not. She's coming in and she's been arrested for a runaway. Well, running away is not a delinquent offense. It's not an offense you can lock a kid up for, right? Like it's just not, constitutionally sound and it shouldn't happen probably in general but but kids run away for a reason there's a reason why that's happening and in this particular case a girl came in for a runaway of course it's five o'clock on a friday don't know what to do um mom refused to take her back because they'd had a huge fight and she's still pissed off and doesn't want to have her in the house and they don't know how they're going to calm down and there's no family member so i called child welfare and they're like well you know she's not dead dying or bleeding so you know try to find her a place because we can't help her you know, tried public mental health and like, well, she's not really suicidal. You know, I don't know what we can do for her. And I'm a 23 year old probation officer who read a binder and barely had a degree. I didn't know what to do. So I called up the sheriff department and said, can you help me? We had to take her back home. So we went and drove the kid in the back of my squad car and sat out front of the parents' house and basically spent an hour and a half talking in the talk, talking them into taking her back. Um, and the sheriff deputy followed me on the way back out. He was like, yeah, you be ready. You better have early, early dinner because you're probably going to be uh, called back out to, to bring her back in for a domestic assault. And that's exactly what happened. She ended up in detention at like two in the morning. Her mom and her got in another fight. And this time someone had to get arrested. Now, I tell that story um, because it's not an uncommon one. And we don't know what to do. In, in Dublin, Ireland, what they actually do is they have what they call a three-quarter house or a halfway house runaways go there and then they're reunified with their families through therapy models like functional family therapy and we don't have that here so from that case forward as well as some stuff that I went through as a kid what I realized is you know I could have very easily been that kiddo locked up too but I was a white kid in a small town in North Texas and everybody knew me so when I ran away I had a safe place to stay so why is that what's happening so the particular study you're referencing we actually looked at over 6,000 kids who had been arrested over a three-year time period and did some analysis to see if we could figure out what predicted where they went and how long they stayed. Um, and in that study, you're right, we, we surprisingly found that girls were almost 12 times more likely to go to an institution for a violation of probation than boys. And then once there, they stayed for five days longer on average. And then our more recent study where we looked over 300,000 kids across a seven-year time period, we, that increased the rate was 20% longer. So being a girl by pure nature, one, increased your likelihood for a non-new offense, meaning breaking the rules of probation, to go to an institution. And then once they were there, they stayed 20% longer than boys for the pure nature of being a girl. And even more significant from the treatment perspective is the things that predict how long they stayed were completely different. Having been exposed to trauma increased a girl's likelihood of staying 3% longer than boys. And then having participated in public mental health treatment prior to incarceration 
increased their stay by 5% longer than a boy. Whereas boys were more likely to stay because of the severity of their offense. So we're looking like, it looks like we, the girls take a different pathway in, they stay longer and they stay longer for treatment reasons and not necessarily for delinquency reasons. What do you think that this means for the long-term outcome of women in our society who have an early term, you know, juvenile incarceration exposure? What does this look like for them long-term? It's, it's tough to say. I think from a research perspective, we got a lot more we need to do. We need to do a lot more cross-systems conversation and analyses. Here's what I can tell you anecdotally, though, is that in the work I've seen in child welfare, the numbers vary from as low as 60% to as high as 85% of the girls who age out of foster care becoming pregnant within a year to two years from leaving foster care or ending foster care. On the other hand, in the juvenile justice system, when you talk to judges and talk to prosecutors and probation officers, a lot of them say they need to lock these girls up to keep them from getting pregnant. And then when you talk to the girls specifically from some research we did in California on girls involved with gangs, we've asked them, what's going on? Why are you getting involved in these systems? What's happening? The number one thing they said they needed was a safe place to stay. Versus when we talked to the treatment providers, they said, oh, they need more treatment. So the long answer to your short question is it comes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs in my mind, is that girls run away for a reason. They run to a place that's safe, even if we don't think it is. That may put them at risk. And because we're concerned, once they become system involved, we try to find a way to get them behind the magic curtain of an institution to protect them and they're not really preparing them for adulthood and so they come back out you know magically 18 19 responsible for themselves and now potentially with a young mouth to feed so you know it doesn't it doesn't bode well or at least it creates a lot of barriers that may not needed to have been there to begin with Obviously, with the Me Too movement, we've seen a lot of change and hopefully change within our communities about how we're referencing women who have been victims or survivors of sex trafficking. And I know that previously and still now, um, women who are being trafficked so they can find a safe place to stay, right? What we know about pimp culture is that they open the door, they're a safe place, they're a sweet boyfriend, and then the system kind of begins. Um, but we see that women try to meet that need for themselves by trying to find a fun, you know, a safe place to stay and end up in this dangerous cycle and then are later charged as juveniles sometimes for prostitution um, or for sex acts. So can you tell me if that was in your research at all with um, looking at juveniles and reasons for incarceration? It, it was not part. It's a new conversation. You know, the Office of Human Trafficking um, and Exploitation is a new one at the Texas Department of Family Protective Services. They've just got their staff up and board. Recently, there's a new office in the governor's office. I think it's kind of a, a new phenomenon, for lack of the term, that people find sexy um, and are starting to pay attention to. There are specialty courts now in San Antonio and other places that focus on prostitution as being a victim-based crime and wanting to divert those kids early on. Um, so I think it's new research. The other piece that people haven't really done a lot of work on specifically, though, is a conversation around the idea of human trafficking. So these girls are just as likely to end up in um, mandated work conditions as they are to end up in 
you know, sex conditions as well. And all of those happen because you're trying to find a way to, to make it. So in our new research it's kicked, that kicked off in January, we got a grant from National Institute for Justice to look at girls' dissonance and gang activity in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, so over the next three years, we'll be interviewing in between 150 and 300 young women, girls and young women in the Rio Grande Valley. We're actually going to be asking them specific questions around that. And we're partnering with both the governor's office and DFPS to develop those questions to see if we can't get a better idea of how that's happening and if it's truly as significant as people think it, it may be. Absolutely. That's really exciting. And we're, we're going to stay following that research because it's important. And it, it impacts, you know, the systems that of child welfare. And specifically, I'm fascinated and honestly had chills when you said that a lot of, you know, the juvenile work is keeping these girls behind bars to hopefully prevent pregnancy. When we know that there's a lot of other systems that could go into place for them, what happens when that eventual data, right, that they do become pregnant after incarceration, um, what happens in the, that system? Can you, can you walk me through that? You know, it's, it would be, it's going to need to be more theoretical and or a case study, right? What I can tell you is from being a person that's worked in both an institution and in the community, it's, it's this life course idea that when big things change in a person's life, their behavior change. It's no different from girls and boys, but it probably happens earlier for girls because boys aren't likely to have a kid and be responsible for them, right? Um, so what happens is they end up really trying to take care of the kiddo and it's not so much, and I, you remember there, you got get typically getting in trouble for violent crimes. You're getting in trouble for things that aren't really in trouble. And I wouldn't get in trouble for because I'm 45 years old, like running away, skipping school, smoking cigarettes on campus. And so when you take those things away and you have this girl that's now been through an institution and ended up with a kiddo, they don't have the same coping mechanisms that they probably need to deal with that appropriately. What I can say is that within institutions though, is that when girls come in, remember they come in with almost three times higher rate trauma than boys. And you know what, that's actually a predictor of them staying longer, right? Having a traumatic experience. That, that the institution itself increases the risk of that trauma exposure, right? So as a kid's young lady is sitting in an institution, she hears the footsteps coming down the hall that sound very similar to the footsteps of the guy who, who molested her. She reacts in such a way, and I've seen it. I've seen girls go straight into hallucinations and throw stuff at them. They get violent, and then they get catch a felony while they're in the institution. Meanwhile, they're also triggered through the trauma. Um, that's, that's a systematic issue. And then when you take them away from the things that we do, like when we get scared, there's three things we do. We either freeze, right? We fight or we run. I've learned recently that I'm a runner. Like my fire alarm went off and I was out the other day. I was out the door. I wasn't freezing or fighting it. I was like, I'm full on out. But when you can't run and you can't fight and then all you have is freeze and those are the two things you typically do, then you act out triply bad in the institutions. And so I've seen girls getting to fights with security officers and like bite them to get them off of them. And then they get charged with a felony while they're in the institution. And so whatever it is, the reality is, is we can't keep putting girls, especially girls who've had trauma, who've had sexual traumas, who have been overly sexualized, especially our girls of color, who that happens to earlier than, than, than white girls, and put them in institutions where young male white men are responsible for them and expect there to be a calm in the storm. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Your research is important. What, when you found that, what systems did you see impactful to mitigate if 
if you did see that? To mitigate, you mean to mitigate girls going deeper in the system and staying home or? Absolutely, yes. The, the best approaches that I've seen are communities that have rallied together around this, this idea of community care or system of care. And that's where um, courts refuse to basically lock kids up when community-based options are there or should be there. So the last ditch effort is to put a kid in an institution for a violation of probation that's based upon something that's not a crime, right? So I didn't finish my treatment with my counselor or I had a problem in school or I came up dirty for marijuana. The first response shouldn't be to lock them up for that. So the systems that question the idea or use the idea that all behavior is communicative and they're trying to figure out why it happened. So why are you positive? Not how is it happening? Why are you skipping school? Not how is it happening? And or why are you running away? And let's figure that out. Those systems um, seem to do better. The others are the ones where that accountability factors in place. So for instance, there's a study out of New Mexico called the Combined Study. A lady by the, Terry, by the name of Terry Moyers did this study several years ago where she randomly assigned a bunch of uh, substance abuse clients to her clinicians in her residential or cl community clinic. Now, every one of these clinicians had been trained and coached in the best evidence-based practice of the time on how to treat this particular substance abuse, every single one. Um, and what she found was that one clinician out of all of her bunch accounted for 25% of the negative outcomes, meaning that one guy or girl was actually harming the clientele, making them worse. And it brought down the stats for the whole organization. So she went back and she did an empathy screen with all of her staff. And she actually found that that one individual had the worst empathy in the whole department. So what that tells me is, is that you can be the best claim tra trained clinician on the planet, have all the credentials and certificates on the wall. If you're a jerk, you're a jerk and you're not gonna make people better. And so I think part of this conversation has to be, we can't keep referring our girls, our kids of color, to clinical services in the community that one, have never been validated or matched on their treatment needs, and two, not automatically assume it's the kid's fault the treatment failed. And those things don't systematically happen. And when communities do do that, when they hold that accountability on the provider array as well as on the youth and families, we actually see better outcomes. That's phenomenal. We've seen that even with the trauma-informed care movement um, with our adoptees um, and our families, um, that, that even that care, like you said, that empathy, that awareness um, for those providers really does change the system as well. That's phenomenal. What does this mean for foster care? So what does this mean... I'll be honest, I've heard this rumbling for years, and I you can tell me if it's, if it's true or false, but... I've heard that the justice system absolutely uses foster care numbers, the number of kids in foster care, to plan out how many beds to have in these prisons. Is that true? Is there any truth to it? I think the myth is the idea that there's one or the other, and they're not. Um, and so, and I'll, you know, y'all may cut this, but I can't help it. You're going to get it. Um, so if you think of it, if you think of our treatment system as a pyramid, this bottom layer is one type of institution. This is a different type of institution. And then there's this institution. This middle bunch is your RTCs, your child welfare beds. This bottom bunch is your juvenile detentions, right? Your pre-court stuff. And then that top is youth prisons. 
So what you see is probation, county probation departments and child welfare fight over that middle bunch. Well, those are your residential, residential treatment centers, your foster homes, your basic care facilities, all of those. Um, the same kids go in to those beds. So a lot of the projections come down to can probation access those intermediate beds at the same level as foster care? If not, the kids can get pushed up to the higher levels because those middle ones are not available. And in my research, which I keep pointing to this other screen that you can't see, that's where we see the variability between genders. So boys are more likely to go to these RTCs and girls are more likely to go to these institutions at almost four times a higher rate, depending on which study you read, um, for violation of probation. And, and the thought behind that, at least my assumption, we need to do more research, is because those middle-level facilities are non-secure. They're not locked. And when a girl who's had trauma histories feels pushed, she's either going to fight, she's going to flight, run, or she's going to freeze. And so when they run from those institutions, then the only other thing that probation sees they can do is put them behind locked doors. That's one. The other side is a lot of those mid-level institutions don't actually take girls because they're hard to manage. So that bed question is a very good question. It's just very complex to determine how those systems interweave. In addition to you have to understand that in Texas, juvenile justice is, is, is run through our family courts. So a lot of times the judges making these decisions are also your foster care judges. And so it kind of comes down to, I hate to say it, it comes down to a treatment need and how is it going to get paid for? That's fascinating. When we started our Gladney home a little bit over a year ago, we went to the community and we said, we have this, you know, this facility. It used to be a, um, a dorm for women who were planning adoption, needed somewhere to stay. And we saw that need decrease, right? Because like what you talked about, the systems and communities and keeping women involved in those. Um, but we went to the community and we said, we have this space and we know women. Um, and so what can we do? And the first thing that they said was we need beds for girls in foster care, teen girls in foster care. It was a need. They didn't have it. Um, and it was, I mean, the first thought out of their mouth um, of what the need was. So it, it matches up exactly what you said. There's just not a spot. Um, and teens in foster care, female teens in foster care have a lot of history of trauma. And so it's hard to provide care. Um, it's hard to have funding for care. Um, and so that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And it's, it's not even just hard. We don't have providers that are prepared. So the biggest complaint I have on the system as a whole is that we have a really bad habit of doing the same thing over and over again and doubling down the dosage with a different provider. Mm -hmm. So you actually have tons of CBT. You don't double the dosage down because a girl has trauma. You also don't force her into a trauma treatment she's not prepared for. We don't actually assess and match the needs. So then when you take a girl, right, who's had tons of trauma history, who hasn't done anything really wrong, she's been brought into the foster care system, and your foster families aren't prepared to deal with the complex responses this now 14, 15, and 16-year-old girl's going to have. Mm -hmm. I was that girl. I know I was hard. I mean, my mom, I'm, God bless her. Um, we've all been there. And then if the foster families aren't prepared, 
then the only response they have is to call the police department and we end up in that perpetual cycle. So I, I, I think what at least Texas should do, and I've worked in every state in the union, but this is my home, we really need to think about how we need to enhance our provider array and provide our treatment providers with either more resources and supports, especially our foster families, on how to deal with these complex kids and families, instead of automatically assuming we actually need more institutions. I think the beds are there. The people with them aren't prepared to deal with the complex needs that the kids are coming in. And so they cycle. Does that make sense? It does. And I can tell you from our experience that matches, right? Like the levels of care that you have to have in place is complex and it's hard because each girl comes with history. Um, And the behaviors, like you said, can seem dangerous and scary. um, But when you look at them from that trauma-informed lens, it makes so much sense. How can we divert these out-of-home placements? How How can we change that? You know, I think, again, it comes back to what you pay for is what you get. And, and I think Texas needs to make a serious investment right now, thinking about all of these reforms as being healthcare changes. And what, I, what I'm saying, what I'm getting to here is we need a really good mobile crisis system in our state. We don't have it right now. And what I mean by mobile crisis, this is where mobile teams come out and actually diffuse the situation, help families get assistance and move them into treatment services or supports that are good for them versus coming in, arresting someone and putting them in the system. We have opportunities to do that with the Family First Act. We have opportunities to do that through our Medicaid waivers. We have opportunities to do that by closing youth institutions and moving money in the community. The situation we have though is managed care is not on the same page as child welfare is on the same page as public mental health. They're not all actually looking at that. So your providers are doing the best they can to pay the bills and get things done. So one is we need to invest in the communities to actually create mobile crisis and other diversion strategies that keep families together instead of fragmented when okay. And then the second is we need to be able to invest in our foster care families to actually give them enhanced skills and stop paying just a low rate. You know, if we went to a single case rate where if you got Aaron Espinosa in your care, you shouldn't only get paid a little here and a little here and a little there. Like it's like, I, you really need to be a professional family. So like, if you look at Treatment foster care, right? We have treatment foster care in our state, but we don't have a model for it. So if you look at treatment foster care Oregon and some of the other models, in both of those, what happens is the foster parents are the service provider, and that is their job. They get a living wage to care for the kids in their care instead of piecemealing it with $100 here, $40 there. And so I feel like it's a part-time job. It's not. You're a full-time parent. Um, so we need to think about approaches coming in this next legislative session where we can have the dollars follow the kiddo and the family to, to, to do that. I don't know if that makes sense. Because the, the biggest risk factor that we have with foster care youth is multiple home displacements. I think the average rate I saw in the last set of data in Texas is like between 8 and 10 per year. And these kids, especially our girls, bouncing from home to home to home. And that's not good for any individual, you know? So although it doesn't tie directly into the science I've done, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. That's, that's where more research needs to push for policy and practice. And, you know, one of the struggles I have with, with only limiting our data analysis to kids that are in justice systems, we got to look at more of this foster care data and, and things of that nature. Are you able to speak to the discrepancy um, of children of color in the foster care system? 
I can, I can't, because it's it, it almost mirrors JJ. Which would JJ would be juvenile justice, right? I'm a queen of acronyms, and I I, I shouldn't be. Um, so the child welfare and juvenile justice system almost mirror each other. They're, and remember, they're, they're parallel systems. It's just that the child welfare kids come in at a lower age. Like in our state, you can't get arrested unless you're 10, right? But you can come in the child welfare all the way between that. And there's two ways to come in. You come in for abuse and neglect, or you come in because your family has to relinquish you because you can't access treatment. And that's the piece I think people keep missing is that there's a significant I think the last stat I read was like almost 30% of the kiddos who come in to child welfare in Texas come in because the families can't access treatment for those kids. And a lot of those are post-adopt. Like these are kids who come into the system and came back out and been adopted and they've come right back in. Um, so that disproportionality is you got kids of color with trauma histories who have cycled in and out of institutions and in the foster care side, they come in much younger. So they're going to have a longer time in. The child welfare, they come in at 10 and up. I mean, juvenile justice, they come at 10 and up. And then they cross over at some point. And, and again, it's around that 30% wheel, 30, 30, 30 across. And nationally, what we see is that the um, at arrest, as well as at, what do you call it in child welfare? Is it pre-investigation, investigation? Like when a case is first filed, yeah, every state's different, but typically we hear intake or investigation. Let's call it investigation. So the equivalent is, because again, I'm visual. <laughs> this is JJ, this is child welfare. Uh, so this is, kid's been arrested, brought in for an intake at JJ. This is a kid has been um, identified as being abused or neglected in their investigation. What we see nationally in both of these, at these pre-court pieces, around 60 to 70% are white. But once they get to the court involvement, that shifts, right? So as soon in the, in the JJ system, as soon as the kid goes to court and now they're gonna be found guilty of a crime, the, these are primarily kids of color. And then when these kids and families go to court and they're removed from the home because the family's been found to have been, been inadequate, those are primarily families of color. So something's happening between here and here, courts here, where discretionary decisions or service provider access is different for families of of color than for families that are white. No How one's can, done specific research around it, but that's it. So Erin, why are people of color, children of color being prosecuted more, removed more than people who are white? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question for a middle-aged white woman sitting with her PhD to answer. Um, but I'll take a stab. I, I actually think it's a failure of our communities. We've seen it. We've seen it in the, in the, in the protests that are going on right now. We've had our heads in the sand. Um, the reality is, is that most of the providers that come out of schools of social work and public mental health are not providers of color. They don't live in those communities. They get the certificates, hang them on the wall. Now I know the answers to your problem. I, I have worked in the public mental health system for the last decade across this country, trying to coach clinicians and case managers and social workers on how to align and partner with families. And I can tell you that we can't do that if they continue to blame the families for where they are. And how many times I've had to work on values that these providers had and their ability to basically say that mom is a horrible individual well, that's interesting, considering you don't have to try to raise five kids on your own on a welfare check, and blaming families is the, you can't come into an empathetic, reciprocal, 
uh, hopefully, you know, kind of an equipoise clinical environment with a family if you're automatically blaming them. And, and so I think that there's a values issue in our country and that it permeates our treatment system and it permeates our social control. So the reality of it is, is if you follow the timelines, children, juvenile justice reform in the country started in the 1990s, primarily behind this idea of the myth of the super predator, primarily around this idea that there were these African-American boys who were going to be hooked on methamphetamines and cocaine and they were going to go out and rape, murder, and pillage. So now we need to have these dollars that go to juvenile justice to prosecute all these guys that are going to come out here and hurt our, hurt our women. Parallel to that, there was children's mental health reform and deinstitutionalization that happened in the late 80s, early 90s. They closed mental health institutions, but they didn't fund any community treatment. The social control that got funded was juvenile justice. Child welfare reform didn't start really happening until the late 90s, early 2000s. Same kind of thing. We started seeing these floodgates of these meth-addicted and coke-addicted moms, primarily, you know, having babies that were addicted, so now we need to expand on child welfare. So the systems were set up to be blaming instead of to be partnering. And, and that's an issue. Go back to the combined study. The number one person in her entire clinic that had the worst outcomes with his clients or her clients. In some reason, I want to keep saying it's a guy, but it's, we don't know. It's because he didn't have empathy. And if we can't, if our clinic or our human service industry can't sit down with a family and really try to understand the behavior, it's the things that are contributing to the behavior and align that from a, from a Maslow's lens, we're going to constantly get families of color in our systems. We're going to fragment them. Um, and I mean, I have data that I probably can analyze and tell you that story, but from coaching across the country, from working in child welfare, juvenile justice, and children's mental health, every one of those systems closed down families as being non-compliant. Every single one, when, when the families start to check out on services, says you're non-compliant. And the last time I checked, compliance was an enforcement issue, not a compassion, not a treatment, and not an equipoised kind of conversation. I'm like taking a pause on that because, I mean, I kept going back to that study with the word empathy, right? Like, and unfortunately, I mean, in our communities, like you said, that there are less, you know, graduates of social work degrees, counseling degrees, um, of people of color, and it's a higher, you know, industry of white workers. Um, it's hard to teach that empathy for the experience that our families of color are having, do you have any insight into maybe what, what could work? How a clinician who has never experienced all of these systematic failures could even begin to gain empathy for these systems? Yeah, I, 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 I'm going to probably simplify it too much. Um, don't be a jerk. <laughs> you know what? They're, talk to people like they're humans. Just because you have a license and 3,000 hours of supervision doesn't mean you know squat about what the person that you're talking to instead of with is going through at all. So that's the first piece. Uh, when I coach clinicians, it's like you don't, you're maybe the subject matter expert on how to do cognitive behavioral therapy or analyze the heck out of an assessment. That parent is a subject matter expert of her family. And everyone has strengths, like when they come in. I want to know, my God, when's the first time your kiddo got in trouble? Like, when's the first time you noticed something was wrong with Johnny or Sue or Sam? 
how the heck did you get through that then? Like we have forgotten as a world of how to actually build on the strengths people come in with. And we just see people as all their faults and their bad traits. And then we start trying to throw services at them. You know, you didn't have super case manager, but you got Aaron Espinosa now. And by God, I know how to fix you. Well, I don't, you know, I don't know how to fix myself. So I think the, the, the long answer to your short question yet again is we need to train our clinical world differently. And we need to, I, I would recommend if I were running a clinic of any sort, I would only hire people that scored above a certain range on an empathy screen. You can train anybody to do anything. You can't train people to not be jerks. Or, you know, my grandmother would say, jack wagons or jack wagons are going to be that way. I don't want to hire them. I don't want them working with me. And not make that assumption because I don't have any control over how I was born. I do have a lot of control over how I interact in the world. And as an organization or a community leader, I have control over how I set expectations around that. Absolutely. My neck hurts from like nodding my head so much. (laughs) Yes. And I, I have experienced that where... You genuinely can't teach people empathy, um, and that that is that is something that you know comes from experience and comes from you know hardship. And I'm just so grateful that you've shared that with us today because I think it's huge, and I think it's a really easy practical tool that you know human resources can use to execute um, and make sure that they're putting providers on the front lines that actually care. Um, and don't want to just shove another problem into another problem. We got to create a structural system. So my master's degree is actually in public administration with a specialization in finance and org behavior. It's weird. I get it. I'm a unicorn. There's a reason why I say this, though, is um, what you pay attention to is what gets done. And unfortunately, our public system is financed in such a way that families and kids are kind of widgets. How many did you serve? How many services did they get? And did they get through? We don't set up structures where systems are supported in doing, doing better. How do we, are we making them better? Are we getting better? Are we hiring better staff? And then we bring in really low level workers from straight from college. who have no experience because that's all we can afford for those paying jobs. It's like your average salary for a case manager in the state of Texas right now is like $38,000. That's, unfathomable that was my starting salary 20 years ago you know that's that you can't live on that and so as soon as that case manager gets his or her license they're going to leave that system and they're going to move on to a private enterprise or do something else so you lose your good talent pool because there's no incentive so i know this is not something gladdening can fix but it is absolutely something that the provider array can talk about especially going into session Call the Texas Alliance, talk to other folks and say, we need to right size our paying models and be allowed to support our growth of staff to be able to have these impacts on outcomes that we need to have. Um, And that can happen. There are models that work through Medicaid waivers, 4E waivers, you know, stop relying on the state bureaucracy to make that decision. And as a provider rate, say we want to do better and we need to pay the bills to do that. So Erin, we are obviously going to continue this conversation through trainings and um, absolutely hope to have you back for another podcast. For our viewers who have geeked out on you like I have today, how can they stay in touch with you? There's a few ways. Uh, You can call my direct line. I'm going to give that number now. I say it's direct. I'm remote out of Oakland. It's an Oakland number, but it it does come to this desk next to the guitar. Um, So that's 510-874-5531. Shoot me an email um, at my email address, which is espinosa 
So it's E-E-S-P-I-N-O-S-A at nccdglobal.net, where you could Google me. Like, you can find my LinkedIn. You can find my, I mean, I'm on the interwebs. Not hard to find. There is another Erin Espinosa running around this world, but she's not me. She's a brunette. So if you find the blonde, you should be all right. Awesome. Erin, thank you so much for this conversation today. You are visual, I'm visual. So we're going to include some graphics today from our conversation in the show notes, along with resources and your contact information. Thanks for tuning to this episode of Reframed. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to Reframed. Visit gladneyuniversity.org to access the show notes and learn about upcoming trainings at Gladney University. We'd love your feedback, so please rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.